If you've been following along on our recent sermon series, we have been studying through the book of Galatians, one of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, and our sermon series is called Real, the Search for Authentic Faith. Now, the Galatian Christians that Paul had preached to around 49 AD, by the time Paul wrote this letter to them about a year, a year and a half later, had kind of gone off track from the gospel message that they'd heard from the Apostle himself. What had happened is some Jewish believers who had become, come to know Jesus uh, had come there, they're called Judaizers in the Scriptures, and taught these new Gentile converts that they had to obey the Jewish laws from the Old Testament in order to be saved, which was a different message than Paul had shared with them, the simple message of the gospel that John 3.16 captures for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Somehow, that message had gotten lost in translation and these Galatian converts had lost their way. Reminds me of a story I heard some time back. A woman took her older husband to a doctor's office and after the checkup, the doctor said, your husband is suffering from a very serious infection. The husband, who was very hard of hearing, said, what did he say? His wife said, he says you're sick. The doctor went on, but there is hope. You just need to reduce his stress. Each morning, give him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant, be nice, be kind. For lunch and dinner, make him his favorite meal every time and don't discuss your problems with him. It will only make his stress worse. Don't yell at him or argue with him. And most importantly, just cater to your husband's every whim. If you can do this for six months to a year, I'm certain your husband will make a full recovery. The husband asks his wife, what did he say? And the wife says, he says you're going to die. <laughs> well, friends, in our passage in Galatians 4, the great apostle Paul elucidates with great clarity and real power the simple promise of the gospel. I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. From Galatians chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. But when the time of fulfillment had come, God sent his son, born of a woman. No other child has had a virgin birth, born of a woman, except him. All the rest of us are born from a father and a mother, born under the law. Yet all of this was so that he would redeem and set free those held hostage to the law, so that we would receive our freedom and a full legal adoption as his children. And so that we would know that we're his true children, God released his spirit of sonship into our hearts, moving us to cry out intimately, my father, my true father. Now we're no longer living like slaves under the law, but we enjoy being God's very own sons and daughters. And because we're his, we can access everything our father has, for we are heirs because of what God has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I want to invite you to pray with me for a moment. I always like to invite prayer as we look at God's word because the Holy Spirit inspired these words to be captured in every word in the scriptures. And the same Holy Spirit's in our lives and we're going to ask him to illuminate these things to us. And I also invite you to pray for me as I share his word that I might share it in a way that most blesses you and honors him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word 
It's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And it teaches us your truth that we might truly understand who you are, what it is you've done for us, and how it is we can live into those things. We invite you, Lord, to help us to grasp what you're speaking through your word to us, and even more importantly, to live into these things by the power of your spirit. We pray all of these things and trust you for them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, an ancient Christian manuscript from the second century recorded this account. I am in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I'm puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake, a young man asks. And here was the response. Colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you're sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave it is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve his work. Well, friends, this is a list of extra-biblical rules that were penned in the second century. They're so far off and away from the truth what God had communicated. And somehow some of these things continue to this day where people are adding on all these things, the simple message of the gospel. Many years ago, an older elder, elder of a church that I served at uh, said to the elder council one time, and I was in the hearing of this, that he believed that you drank, if you drank even a thimbleful of alcohol that you'd immediately go insane. Someone had taught him that. That sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? But the sad tragedy of legalistic Christianity is that it looks and sounds like it will produce spiritual maturity when it actually has the exact opposite effect, dragging the Christian back and away from the simple gospel of following Jesus as Savior and Lord. But these Galatian Christians of Paul's time, just like some believers today, surely aspired to grow and go forward in their Christian walk, but they're going about it backwards. I do believe this is still happening a lot in our world today, in the Christian world today, 2,000 years later. The Christians have either been participating in a church or been part of a group that emphasizes that, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but you have to continue to earn your way to heaven. Paul was trying to get across to the beloved, his beloved converts in Galatia the real faith that the Judaizers, as they're called, had deceived them into believing that the law would make them better Christians and save them. Warren Rearsby puts it so well about legalistic Christianity. He says, their old nature, legalistic Christians, felt an attraction for the law because the law enabled them to do things and measure external results. As they measured themselves and their achievements, they felt a sense of accomplishment and, no doubt, a little bit of pride. They thought they were going forward when actually they were regressing. He goes on to say legalism then is not a step towards maturity. It is a step back into childhood spiritually. The law was not God's final revelation. It was but the preparation for that final revelation in Christ. My experience in ministry over the past 35 or so years tells me that many gospel-believing Christians live under a cloud of guilt and shame, feeling miserable about who they are as Christians because they can never feel like they're doing enough to, to somehow gain God's approval and blessing even though they've heard the simple gospel message. 
Maybe you grew up in or were part of a spiritually formation situation as a new believer in a church that kind of mixed the message of the salvation by grace message with a sense of obligation to follow the laws or some other standards that church had set for you. This has led you to always feeling like you're failing instead of flourishing as a Christian. But Paul powerfully and poignantly addresses this false teaching and doctrine with three prongs in his teaching here in Galatians chapter 4. Number one, he reminds them of the redemption that Jesus himself had repaid our full debt of sin to God once and for all. Secondly, he reminds them of their regeneration, theological term for meaning being rebirthed by God himself of his own essence and nature. And thirdly, what those two things lead to is a completely different kind of relationship with God than any Old Testament person could have, a relationship with God as Father. So let's look at that redemption part. Jesus paid the required price to buy us back from the damnation, the condemnation under the law at the price of his own blood and body. Here's what it says in Galatians 4, we just read it. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as his children. Now, not one single human under the law could pay the price for themselves. Could not. Not a single human could ever save themselves and pay the penalty for their own sins. So Jesus covered our debt your debt and mine to God, completely, finally, and eternally. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. All the angry judgment of God against sin from the beginning of time until that moment was put upon Jesus. He absorbed it all to pay a price for us. Friends, we as believers know this, right? But somehow, like the Galatians, we forget and try to make up the difference by our own human efforts to appease God and to please God. It's been said, grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Now, the law's purpose is not to highlight our ability, but our inability. The law's purpose is not to highlight our strength, but our weakness. The law's purpose is not to highlight my righteousness, but my lack of righteousness, no matter how much effort I put into keeping it. So what is the purpose of the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments in the Christian's life who's saved? Well, in fact, the law is the very thing that pointed out our sinfulness in the first place, that helped you see your need of a Savior. It brought conviction to you. You said, wait, there's stuff about me I can't change. I've got to do something. And then comes the message of Jesus' work for us. Theologian Helmut Tillich gives us a great insight on the role of the law in the continued life of a Christian. He says it this way, The law is a kind of sheepdog whose purpose is to recall the members of the flock to the path of the shepherd. Now it is a shepherd who does the leading, not the dog. It is not the dog, but the shepherd who is the center and focal point for the flock, the one to whom the sheep know themselves to be related. Moreover, the flock wants to follow that shepherd. It is aware that there is their place of safety. When we begin to stray away from following the shepherd, 
That sheepdog is out there nipping at our heels when we're tempted to go into sin. He's out there nipping at our heels. We lag back and aren't walking in Jesus' ways, nipping at our heels, pushing us back to Jesus. Never once could that sheepdog save anybody, but it keeps us in God's pure path. But let me say this. God's moral code will never change. Its sole purpose, however, was to convict us of sins and point us toward Jesus. That's it. So secondly, Paul then talks about their regeneration, which is a theological term, which means God rebirthed us, not of Adam's fallen seed, where all of the race of Adam, when he fell, the whole human race, and some call that original sin, but it was a sin that entered the human race through Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. But this is what God's plan was, is to give us a fresh start. Here's what it says in verses 6 and 7. Because you're his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. God has made you an heir of his. The Apostle Paul expands on this more in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to listen to these words carefully right out of the scriptures. It says this in verse 17. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new creature altogether. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and new has come. I want you to just pause with me for a minute and ponder that. Do you ever think about yourself as a completely new person? Do you ever think about, amidst all your efforts to be a good Christian, all your efforts to keep God's ways, to follow Jesus, the, the spiritual practices that you do, have you ever thought about what God has done in contrast to what you're able to do? He actually has the power to give you new life, a new, make you a new person, and that's exactly what the Scriptures tell us. God Almighty, the creator of all things, decided in his sovereign, unassailable will to progenerate, to create each of us, not just of the dust of the earth now, but of his own divine essence and being in the new creation. That's the new you that will last forever in heaven. God made an ontological change, which is a theological term, means on the inside of us. He's changed our inner essence, our spirit and our soul has become new and fresh. I want you to understand something. God is not in the rehabilitation business. Not at all. Somehow trying to restore you to your original condition of perfection. You know why? Because none of us were ever perfect in the first place. At our best, we were flawed from the factory. He did not do a factory reset like you do to a computer or a, a mobile phone that makes it like it was when it came out of the factory. No, when we came out of the womb, we all had a broken, sinful nature that was on, not only prone to sin, but could not help but sin. Our nature, in essence, was already flawed. And the whole human race became corrupted, corrupted by the virus of sin of Adam. Every single human ever born since him has that same virus except Jesus. All of us infected by this malware we're set in opposition against God's holy purposes. But in regeneration, being born again quite simply means that God scrapped the old you and made you a new person. 
with a new perfect predisposition now towards righteousness, towards holiness, towards everything that is good and right and true. That new person already exists inside of you. That is God's plan for saving us. Please don't ever let anyone make you believe that in Christ you're just a miserable, lousy sinner. You and I were miserable, helpless sinners. But now we are the direct offspring of the Almighty. We are, in fact, the king's kids. Sounds pretty amazing. Maybe a little bit out there, right? But listen to the Apostle Peter. We've heard from Paul. Here's Peter, what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, some profound words. And listen carefully. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. It's already in there through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises. That so through them, you may, hear this, participate in the divine nature. Think about yourself participating in the divine nature. That's what the scripture says. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You and I are not just forgiven for our sins, God has solved the real problem, not the sins themselves, but the sinful nature in us. And he's given us his nature. And God has never sinned once. He truly is perfect. And he's birthed us of his own essence. You and I now have inside our being everything we need to live a godly life. Now, No, we are not God himself or gods. Of course not. There's only one God. But that one God has recreated you and me through Christ so that we actually really are his divine children. Bring a third apostle in on this. John, three very prominent uh, writers in the scriptures. The apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel says this, Yet to all who receive him say yes to Jesus, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now friends, this new you, already inside of you, are good and God-like passions and desires and intentions and willingness along with that godlike nature he's given to is the ability to do some things you think are maybe impossible to forgive and forget what people do against you just like god to turn the other cheek when evil comes your way to love those who hate you just like god does to bless those who curse you just like god does to return good for evil and ultimately to be able to exhibit and live into all the aspects of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about later on in this series. But love and joy and peace are burgeoning inside of your being, this new you. Patience, kindness, and gentleness are already there. Goodness and faithfulness. And then this biggie, self-control. That's the new person that you are in Christ. Your new self is animated by the Holy Spirit to look like God, to reflect Jesus. 
You already have everything you need, the Scripture says, but we simply need to believe that what the Scripture says about us is true, not our own low self-esteem. If you spend more time putting yourself down, condemning yourself, thinking ill of yourself, thinking that's going to make you a better person, you've probably tried it for your whole life and it doesn't work at all. It doesn't make you a better person, it makes you a miserable person. You can't change yourself. You don't have to. God's already done it. You need to, by faith, accept it and let him lead you forward. God sees you as a person on whom he has exerted his essence, regenerating and birthing not just a new person in you, but a new child of his made entirely in his image. One of the scriptures I want to tie in out of Ephesians chapter 2 where it says this, and hear these words, in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, or this translation says masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. As I said a moment ago, some of us need to rewrite those scripts that go on every day. You're doing some good things, but then you do the bad things and you focus on the bad things. I'm a bad Christian. God doesn't love me. God doesn't accept me. How can I ever please him? You're into that negative cycle. We need to turn that around and start affirming with our words and what we speak. And it's not selfish or prideful to just affirm what God says. I am a new creature in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have the image of the Father God imprinted on my inmost being and I can, with his help, live into that more and more every single day. Tim Keller offers this perspective on all this. He says, it's very easy and common to think of our salvation only in terms of the first part of this, that, that redemption part, and not the second. That is, only the transfer from us of our sins, but not the transfer to us of the Son's rights and abilities. When we think like that, we're only really half saved by grace. We can get pardoned, but now we have to live a good life to earn and maintain God's favor and rewards. That's what so many try to do. Paul wants to show the Galatians and us that not only did Christ remove the curse we deserved, but he also gives us the blessing he deserved. The son's purpose was to secure for us the legal status of our sonship or childhood in God. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. Not just a theory, not just a doctrine or an idea, that day in and day out, every day we wake up, we do so with gladness in our heart because we know our position with God. This new person that God's power has recreated you to be now is fully able to have a real and deep and meaningful relationship with the God who is your Father. That's that new relationship part. Keller goes on to say the astonishing bottom line of sonship is that God now treats us as if we'd done everything Jesus done. Hard to imagine, isn't it? But that's what it is. So when Paul says that we should use it, he is vividly asserting that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. We can approach God, every one of us in Christ, as if we were as beautiful heroic and faithful as Jesus himself. Does that sound like your prayer life? Does that sound like how you approach the throne of God? Or do you stay far off, face down, bowed down, confessing your sins, which we all need to continue to do, 
But once he forgives us to dust ourselves off, stand, let him do that and bring us back to the place. Do you feel confident coming into his presence? That's what God wants you to feel. I want to illustrate this profound change in our relationship with the Father God with a story from my life. Many years ago, I got a job in a large company in the city of Chicago. I was working in the shipping department, loading trucks, uh, semi-trucks every day with product. It was a large facility, huge building, 200,000 square feet or so, and had over 100 trucks. Some of them were local delivery around Metro Chicago. Some went to the Midwest, and the semis went as far as the East Coast and out to Colorado. Constant activity going on there. There were about 500 employees at that time, and there were several break rooms in the plants for employees like me and others who were hourly to get bad vending machine coffee and other junk food item for lunch, you know, that kind of thing. On the north end of that facility was the office wing where the corporate offices housed around 40 administrative and financial employees, but on the end of that hallway, the east end of that, was the executive suite where all the VPs and leaders had their offices. And at the end of that hallway was the CEO's office suite. None of the hourly employees ever dared to tread on that hallowed ground unless they were invited or required to be there, especially the end of that hall. No one ever went there without an appointment to the CEO's suite. But one day, on my lunch break, I just made my way to the office and went down that open office wing and strolled right down the hall to the executive wing, passed the treasurer's office, said hi to him, senior VP's office, said hi to him, the executive VP said hi to him, and even the CEO's executive assistant, who was the gatekeeper and kept his calendar, just walked right by, tapped on the CEO's door, and just walked in. I tread that hallowed ground like no other of those 500 employees with a quiet assurance I'd both be accepted and welcomed there. What was different about me? Was I just a brazen fool looking to get fired? Was it my financial prowess and my business savvy, my great accomplishments for the company? Had I developed a new product that made the company millions of dollars that made me so calm to walk in there? No, not at all. I just loaded trucks all day, every day. Why could I do it? And why did I do it? Well, because the CEO of that company was none other than my father, Mel Gleiman. And no matter what he was doing, he always welcomed me with open arms. Smile on his face, said maybe once in a while, hey, you know, when this meeting's over, let's catch up. But often, just, hey, come on, sit down. He wanted to talk to me in the midst of his busy day. Why? Had I done anything to earn that status or position? No. It was my parents' decision to have children. And it was their decision, not my actions, that gave me that lofty status and made me an heir, actually. Do we fully grasp that that's exactly what our Father God has done for every single one of us? He did what we could not do for ourselves. He gave it to us as a gift. We have full and free access to his throne any time we'd like to knock on his door. And he's made every single one of us heirs of everything that he has. Ephesians 2.6 reveals it this way, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Where does Jesus live? He's at the right hand of the Father. You can't get any closer. And that's where every one of you and I in Christ reside now. No angel sits on that throne. Blood-bought, saved, regenerated Christians do with Christ. You're there right now. You can't possibly get a better spot than that. But friends, as we move to our closing today, 
There may be some hearing this message either here in, in the sanctuary or online that you've been around the church much or most of your life. You've been around Christian teaching. You've even been in Bible studies, but maybe for the first time you're hearing the salvation by grace thing is real. And maybe that's the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart. You've worn yourself out trying to make yourself acceptable to God, trying to feel better about yourself and God. You look to hear about great saints and even people doing what we saw in this video. Those are really good Christians, but I'm not one of those people. Friends, very likely Jesus may be knocking on your heart this very day. If you're feeling that stirring, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any person hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, I will come into them and share my life with them. If you sense Jesus is knocking on your heart today, simply open your heart and your mind to him and invite him to come in to stay. He will indeed come in and save you from your past. He will cleanse you, restore you, birth a new life within you this very day and give you a completely new life to look forward to. Max Licato captures it this way, quoting Ephesians 1. He says, He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. The courthouse records in heaven have been changed. You already have everything you need to be everything God desires. You have access to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This may be the best-kept secret in Christendom. We underestimate what happened to us upon conversion. One writer has observed many Christians view their conversion as something like a car wash. You go, through, go in a filthy clunker and you come out with your sins washed away, a cleansed clunker. But conversion is more than the removal of sin, as we've seen. It is a deposit of power. It is as if your high-mileage two-cylinder engine was extracted and a brand-new Ferrari engine was mounted in your frame. God removed the old motor, caked and cracked and broken with rebellion and evil, and replaced it with a humming, roaring version of himself. He embedded within you and me the essence of Christ. You are fully equipped now. Need more energy? You have it. More kindness? It's yours. Could you use some more self-control, self-discipline, or self-confidence? God will indeed equip you with everything you need to do His will. Just press the gas pedal. We've heard from the Apostle Paul, inspired in the Scriptures. We've heard from the Apostle Peter, We've also heard the inspired words of the Apostle John. As we close now, I want you to listen and just listen with your hearts from the very words of Jesus himself in Matthew's Gospel. Listen to what he says. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You pray with me? Jesus, thank you for everything you've already done for us. 
leaving heaven's beauty and glory and coming to this earth, laying your life down on the cross to redeem us, being raised up to new life, and Father, sending your spirit into our lives to make us different people. Lord, enable us to live up to and into all these things you called us to be, to your glory and to your honor in Jesus' name. Amen.